My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Today I'm at Crinan on Scotland's Sound of Jura, about to go fishing with two people at opposite ends of a 40-year-old story to protect and conserve our target species for today, which is the common skate. Back in the 1970s, as fish recorder for the Scottish Federation of Sea Anglers, German-born Dr Dietrich Berkel was pivotal in setting up the long-running common skate tagging programme aimed at better understanding population numbers and distribution in order that measures might be put in place to try to bring a deteriorating population back to some sort of semblance of what it had been before. After moving back to Germany several years later, Much of that data lay on file unused until people like Davy Holt and Bill Little drew up the skate weight estimation charts and everyone started putting them back, as well as recording things like size, sex and location, plus the details of tags either put into those fish or already there as recaptures. The Scottish Sea Angling Conservation Network, or SASACAN, then came into being and started using these data, along with fresh data of their own from a number of shark species to push for full legal protection for endangered species and protected breeding areas for others, which is my link to SASACAN Project's director Ian Burrett, from whose boat we're going to be fishing from today. But first things first. You moved with your family from Germany to Scotland shortly after the Second World War. So was it before or after that move that your interest in fish and fishing first became kindled? Somehow or other, I've always been interested in fish. As a kid, seven or eight, I went down to the canal and I saw funny little black creatures swimming in the water and I talked to my father and he got a stick, the bent pin and a piece of thread and we caught one of those and it turned out to be a small tench. And that was the real beginnings because the canal itself was almost like a chalk stream, absolute clear, crystal clear water. And I could walk along and I'd watch pike standing and preying on other fish. I also did a bit of fishing. And then 19... Oh, I can't remember. My father got the offer to go together with his colleagues to Scotland and... We went across to Scotland and I went to school in Glasgow and there were a couple of years when I didn't do any fishing but then with a friend of mine, you know, we heard Canal had fishing and I started again. And one of the favourite places at that time was Bardawilov, which had a really good pike and big perch. And through that, you know, I continued my interested in coarse fishing. I wasn't particularly interested in game fishing at all. It was too expensive and, you know, I just couldn't afford it. And out of the interest in in, uh, coarse fishing, we founded, with a number of other people, the West of Scotland Coast Fishing Association. And one of the members used to disappear during the summer and only turned up in the winter again until we questioned him once. And he told us that he used to go down to Loose Bay, where there were tow and bass and mullet. And at that time I was working at the, at the museum as a geologist. My training is actually geology. And when I heard that, I thought, go down there and see if I can get some specimens for the museum. And the first fish I got there was a bass, 
but uh, didn't catch it myself. Somebody caught it and they donated it to the museum. But then I also went down to East Harbert. I was absolutely horrified when I saw the number of good big top lying dead on the beach. And I got the contact with uh, a local lobsterman, Bob Hogg, and Brian Hewitt from the Coast Fishing Association, dealing with Roger Reynolds. We'd actually done the pioneer work down there. Uh, we started fishing, and Bob Hogg always told us there were sharks in the area. And people laughed at him. They said, yeah, I'd better have a nutter. So, we, you know, we got together and said, we'd come down and fish for shark. Now, I told, okay, it was shark as well, but by shark we meant big ones, poor beetle. And over a year and a half, I went out on a day when the other two had gone to the other side of Loose Bay to the Port William Tope Festival. And I had gone down to the Mall of Galloway. And I was, never forget, driving down very early in the morning, about six in the morning, and there's a point where you can actually see the lighthouse. And I saw and I started waltzing the car. <laughs> and, well, okay, we went out at five o'clock, we hit the fish, and at half past five it was on hanging from the gantry in, at uh, East Tarbot, and that's how I really got involved with sea fishing. Now, the question was, and that was revealed in quite a number of press 40 years later, that according to all ethics of angling, that capture should not have counted as a record. Now, I never claimed it as a record. And the reason was, we were in a 16-foot boat, and when the fish came, the first fish, when the first time it came alongside, it was practically played out. It was dead, floating on the surface. And one of the skipper's sons tried to gaff it, and he knocked the line and broke it. And the fish was lying there. You know, we said, what do you Well, gaff it. We took it ashore, and we proved the point that there were poor beetle in Spain. And then over the years, for the next um, seven or eight years, I kept going down. I had my own boat, had a second boat, and a first there, and to always tried for shark. Always had a big shark line out, but uh, the other one, to were also you know favourite first to come. But it wasn't only the practical sea fishing, because that, as I understand it, evolved into a number of administrative roles as well. No, the thing, the, that side actually came, the fish recorder of the Sc- of Scottish Federation, Laurie Robinson, when he died, somebody asked me if I wanted to take over as fish recorder, because by that time, you know, people knew I worked at the museum and I hadn't sort of academic interest in fish. And I said, okay. And, you know, that's how I got onto the administrative side. And I was sent up to Shetland to one of the Viking festivals to have a look and see, you know, any record fish. And I was horrified when I saw the big skate which were being landed there. And uh, they just weighed and were discarded in part as, as lobster bait. And... I, at that time, already had connection to the research institute in Germany. There was a chap there, Dr. Matthias Steeman, 
who was a specialist in uh, skate. And I talked to him, and he sort of indicated that the annual movement of skate was deep water in the winter, they come up the slope, and they, you know, they're in, what, 60, 70 feet up there, because the Shetland was always one that could catch on the skate in the winter. And that was because they were going down into deep water. And some of the skate which were marked there came back up maybe 100 yards away from where they'd originally been tagged. Is that a regular occurrence? Because when I was at one of the Sasakin Tagathons on Loch Summit, Gordon Goldie recaught a 137-pound skate he'd originally tagged three years earlier in exactly the same spot. It's just apparently that, um, you know, in winter conditions, because obviously the have a preferred temperature range or for some reason or other, they actually just migrate down maybe about 200 feet down the slope, spend the winter there and then come back up. Because out from Lerwick to the north of Lerwick, the spot which was a, a skate hot spot didn't produce any skate in the winter. And also, you know, they reckoned that the populations were restricted and limited. And that was obviously proved in Alapool, which was at one time the skate hotspot. And uh, the skate festivals up there, they just murdered the fish. And after a few years, I think they had a couple of skate festivals and never caught a skate. Yeah. So was this in part the trigger for the embryonic skate tagging programme, which the second has taken over in more recent times? Well, you know, with all these fish, after I talked to the chap in Germany, I had some idea of what the population was. I then said, OK, if the fish are caught, they can be weighed on board, and this is what they did in the end as well, and then released. And with doing that, it's a good chance to mark them to see what the population densities are. And to begin with, the tagging we did was with cattle tags, cattle ear tags, orange colour on one side, Glasgow, or Glasgow Museum, on the other half, just a number. And we also did the tagging of, of top down at Loose Bay. And I think in my time down there, there were three recoveries. One from the Isle of Wight, one from the Bay of Biscay, and another one, astonishingly, from the Azores. And uh, I'd always reckoned that top were essentially fish on the bottom. But obviously, you know, to get to the Azores, they'd have to go down and <laughs> back up the other side. Yeah. Now, another important task you tackled in your time as Scottish fish recorder was that certain of the records you inherited were deemed to be inappropriate. There were certain species of skate, starry rays, and a few others which I said, you don't get them in inshore waters or you don't get them in waters where people are fishing. They're deeper water. And for instance, I still, I've only ever seen one real blonde ray from Scottish waters. And a lot of the skates raised from Loose Bay, you could have blonde type, you could have spotted ray, thorn bags, you had dark thorn bags, you know, which didn't fit any descriptions. And I think the thorn bag itself is a species which is, in the, or had a chance to evolve into many other species. And this is actually the reason why I, when I became recorder, I tried to research where they had been caught and said, no, OK, that's a fish that cannot... It's never been recorded from there. 
from that depth of water and that's why I removed them from the list. I was actually one of the first beneficiaries of that clear out by taking the spotted ray record which had previously been listed at something like £16. That was a thorn bag, let's go through it with a spotted ray. Then I claimed the vacated slot. <laughs> so, yeah. so what were the other fish you rejected from the list and some of the reasons why? Well it was mainly because I, I, I knew them. It was mainly the, the skates and rays. You know, others, well, I can't remember at the, at the moment why, but, you know, other things appeared, for instance, among the gurnards, the street gurnard, which is very, very characteristic. And there tended to be a concentration of street gurnards of poor party. Okay, there was one caught from there, but then also a, a street gurnard from the shore. And when I became recorder, I got every fish. It was sent to the museum. You know, I claimed it in the name of the Federation, uh, Scottish Federation, and they went into the collection of the museum at Glasgow. And the record list now, does that reflect a truer picture? <sighs> well, I haven't done it for 40 years. <laughs> but I think I set apart, and also the procedure of claiming the record... I started basing that, even for Scotland, on ICFA. I thought that the ICFA rules were good. I also became a member of the British Record Fish Committee and had a coalition with uh, a certain member from the British Museum who was on that. Might that be Alwyn Wheeler by any chance? No name, no pactro. <laughs> yeah. And he was annoyed that I said, you know, I, I am had an opinion on a certain fish. And he said, he can't have an opinion, he's a geologist. You know? And the fish should be sent to him. I said, why bother? I know my fish. And I'd had a couple of uh, deep sea trawling exp expeditions. One that went through the North Sea, where I could tell the leader of the expedition every species that we caught until we got into the Atlantic. I didn't know a bloody species. And he told me what all the species were. So I'm not totally inexperienced. Which particular fish was that with Wheeler? I can't remember now. I think it was one of the gunnards. You know, which were, for some reason or other, was my favourite group. You know, cute little fish. Oh, grunted. The Scottish and British Record Fish Committees are still poles apart in quite a number of different ways. The Scots, for example, have a similar rule, which sooner or later they're all going to have to do in light of legislation protecting fish like common skate and tope, which can no longer be brought ashore for weighing. Well, I think it's generally to base records on weight is daft. If you've got a fish which had a, a good meal before it was caught, or, as was known to swallow a couple of pieces of lead. It would be much more important to base records on measurements that can be falsified, length and girth. I've actually already put a suggestion to the British Record Fish Committee along those lines for a points-based system derived from length multiplied by girth or width, suggesting that even if they didn't do it for all species, with a separate points column running alongside the weights, then at least do it for the sporting and protected species, which anglers are simply not prepared to bring ashore for the sake of making a record claim. 
Well, that's what I think is a very good idea. Okay, you need to know or tell people how to measure. If you've got a, a, a fish which has a big fat belly and you leave it in the boat, you don't take the tape measure over the, the big fat belly. Scientifically, there's a standard measurement from the tip of the north to the fork of the tail. You draw two lines and you measure the distance between the lines. And you can base your records on that. Obviously, if you've got a, a pike which is four feet, it's got more weight than a pike. Okay, if they're four feet and a certain girth, you got a lot of thin pike. But if it's thinner, it scores less points on the length girth multiplication in the same way that it would weigh less on the scales. So the two are actually compatible. On top of which, you could even video record the event as evidence on most mobile phones these days. You know, or, or you simply take a, a photograph of the fish with a tape measure lying at the side. It's the same with many of the competitions. In my time as a recorder, I try to speak against that competition being won on weight basis. I always said the guy who sits uh, when they're fishing Shetland with a big bait and he's hoping to get a skate and he catches one skate, which is, let's say, 150 pound. And the guy who's got a couple of dozen fish, which are 100 pound, who's a better angler. The guy with the skate is a chancer, taking a chance on one big fish to win the competition. And my own attitude was, I took part in a number of competitions. The first thing I did, I disqualified myself by putting out two rods. <laughs> because it was the only way to get to these places. You know, you could, to get up to the skate grounds from Lerwick, you know, you needed a, a good boat. So I went out and I sat there for the three days of the competition with a big bait, hoping to catch a skate. I never caught a skate. Yeah. And do you have any more information on the development of rod line fishing which occurred during your time? Well, coarse fishing became, you know, was put on the map because my one interest in fresh water was pike, pike and carp. And... Um, we had some fantastic days of pike fishing on Loch Lomond and I had two records, 11 fish weighing 211 pound one day and another day 17 fish weighing 200 pound. And this was, you know, there are a few others, Brian Hewitt, for instance, Roger Reynolds. We've got together, just met by accident, on uh, Loch Lomond pike fishing and from that was the idea was born of the Scottish Coast Fishing Federation. Okay, apparently they now have quite a number of waters. And, you know. When you look back at the quality of fishing Scotland had in the 1970s and early 80s and compare it to the current situation, much of that, unfortunately, has now gone. But that was Scotland's heritage. A major potential source of visitor and local angler income lost. Some people do now actually appreciate that a fish released to the water and recaught again and again is worth many times more than when it's laid out on a fishmonger's slab. So is there any hope then for the future, both in the greater appreciation of this and the ability of those once productive areas such as the Clyde to naturally replenish themselves? Well, was even in my days, the belief was that an area which had good sea fishing potential could bring more money 
into the area through bed and breakfast hotels and whatever and boat hire. Then the fish, the value of the fish taken from that area commercially. And I believe the research which has been done has now proved this. And on the Clyde, for instance, you know, there were trawlers coming in and some of the anglers reporting that they were being practically swept off their feet with the way the nets were being trawled over the, over the shore. And that was then a potential of a lot of fish, the money or commercial value of these fish, going into a few pockets. And anglers coming, whether boat anglers or shore anglers, they could bring money to a lot of more families. Yeah, very short-term thinking. The big cod have obviously now gone along with most of the other edible species, and Ian Burrett reports that tope are now also coming under pressure, but not, it would seem, the common skate. So is this a beacon to be held out regarding what can be achieved if anglers and politicians put their mind to it? Well, I think also that uh, to a lot of people, to eat skate wings, they think, oh, it's wonderful. But, I mean, it's uh, like shark fins. It's cartilage, a little bit of tissue. And if you treat it with spices and herbs, <laughs> you can eat anything. Also, at present day, when you see fish used to go land on a fishmonger's lap, and you get a couple of cod steaks. And what do you get now? Fish fingers. People just don't know how to treat fish as a food. And I think that's also the amount of fish which is caught and which is then processed and actually ends up on a, on a table. The percentage has been reduced incredibly. People and the fishermen were needing to catch more and more fish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can remember a fish market where the whole of the fish market was covered in boxes with uh, good coalies. You, know, you consider now, the fish market doesn't exist anymore. It's been eradicated. Speaking of heritage species, which could bring in income if properly managed, there is also the ferox trout, which apart from a few in some of the Cumbrian lakes, are an asset almost unique to Scotland. They're not an actual species. It's a form of the trout which is only found in large lochs with deep water and char. And the pharynx trout are normal brown trout, which have acquired, so to speak, a taste for other fish, predatory fish. And, OK, in, in uh, Ireland you have a number of lochs as well, with the, the gillaroo and, and species like that. And even in Germany on the continent you have large bodies of fresh water with trout that behave like sea trout. They live in the large bodies of fresh water and they migrate to spawn into small streams. And we had a, an example of beautiful trout at the museum. It's about 13 pound. And we got, had a scales exam. It's born in fresh water, spent two years in fresh water, went to sea spent three years at sea, came back, spawned, and went back to sea, but decided to stay in Loch Awe. So what was that? A brown trout, a sea trout? Professor Andy Ferguson at Queen's College Belfast has spent years researching ferox, and he reckons they are at least a subspecies, and possibly even a separate species in their own right, 
though the Ferox 85 lads up at Pit Lockery might have a different opinion. To quote Ferox 85 co-founder Ron Greer, all Ferox are brown trout, but not all brown trout are Ferox. If you consider that a trout, once it gets to a certain size, it cannot survive on just eating invertebrates. So it's actually got to become cannibalistic in order to get enough sustenance to grow. And once they've taken that step, that's, they'll probably grow to a very large size, and those are the ferox. But it makes a bit of a mock of all the effort and money put into artificially rearing big trout for introduction and often same-day capture on certain stillwater fisheries in the south of England, when Scotland has had them, and bigger, for several thousand years. So why then, I wonder, are they not more fully exploiting an asset that they still do actually have? What's a record brown trout in Scotland? Off the top of my head, it's probably going to be pushing up around £32. Well, there was a brown trout taken from Loch Awe, which I believe was £37. That was probably a brown trout which had gone to sea, therefore it was a sea trout, had come back and it stayed. The same as that trout we had at the museum. If you consider, for instance, even salmon in Sweden, in Venom, you have salmon which live all their life in Venom and ascend the streams and rivers going in there. Now, the only reason why salmon, they migrate, it's part of their life cycle, and when they get to sea, the food offer is so much greater than in fresh water. You know, all the things, rear trout on the continent, they have salmon trout. salmon trout are normal brown trout, which have been fed a red dye. So they've got the fresh, like, like salmon. And the red dye is a very interesting substance. It's actually the same as you get in water fleas. Daphnia, the red substance in, in the skin or the carapax of lobsters and in the feathers of flamingos. It's a substance called canthaxanthine, a beta-carotenoid, which is developed by certain organisms as simply alpha-carotene going to this red dye. And when it was discovered or analysed by a, a Swiss chemist who analysed the red feathers of of flamingos and the red feathers of other birds and found that this was the same substance. Then he synthesised it because at that time butter exported to Nigeria was best when it was red or pink. And then he started feeding flamingos and they got red flamingos and didn't need to feed them over, you know, huge amounts of grated carotene. You came to Scotland at a very young age and stayed well into your 30s before going back to Germany. But why the move back? I was very, very unhappy at Glasgow Museum because I had a boss who never allowed me to do anything. I met him, I said, well, you know, I've got an idea. No, 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 it doesn't work. And a couple of months later, I'd say, I've got an idea. No, 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 no. And then maybe a Two or three weeks later, he came to me and said, I've got an idea. <laughs> and uh, I got the offer to set up a zoological museum at the University of, of Hamburg, a show collection. 
And the offer was very, very tempting, with a budget of three and a half million Deutsche Marks, which at that time was just, I think, about a million and a half pound. And I went over 2,000 square metres of exhibition area, showcases, which had already been ordered, but no, nothing to show in the cases. You know, and so I spent 15 years there till my retirement at 63, you know, setting up the museum with myself and a technician who did everything. He was a taxidermist and I was a sort of handyman. We did all the joinery work, all the paint work and that. Very challenging, very mm. enjoyable, but also hell of a frustrating. <laughs> You've been away for more than 30 years, though obviously back now fishing with Ian Burrett for Common Skate, since first coming back for a visit on the 40th anniversary of catching Scotland's first ever poor beagle shark off the Muller Galloway in 1970. So how do you see things as having changed from the 1970s to the situation you've observed on the Scottish sea angling scene today? I'm not really familiar with the sea fishing scene, the competition fishing that was going on uh, when I left in 1980. The reason why I came back, I was surfing on the internet and looking for uh, illustrations of sharks or pictures of sharks. And I saw a picture of a shark hanging from a gantry with a Milbro sort of panel, the captain's name on it, and a little girl standing beside it. And the question was, can anybody identify it, have anything to say about this fish? And that was the shark which I'd caught hanging there. And that's actually how I got back involved into Scotland and fishing. I'd been over several times before, going down to the Mull of Galloway and asked if there was anybody doing sea fishing. And they said no. You know, I mean, Ian was already doing it, but the locals couldn't tell me or wouldn't tell me or whatever. And because of the slagging I got with uh, the shark, you know, this irregularity of it not being landed with the hook and the line still in its mouth, I decided to come across on the 40th anniversary. <laughs> and I hired Ian, didn't tell him who I was or anything, and I arrived uh, the day before the 1st of August, and I was driving down to the Mulhead, and Matthew came towards me with a boat, and it was really a, a weird sort of evening, 6 o'clock in the evening, and it was pitch black. And he was in a lay-by and I was in a lay-by and I started talking to him and I just mentioned who I was and discovered afterwards he'd just gone home and put it straight into the internet. He's back. And none of the people, and there were a lot of people who disliked me, and even the, the, the big article uh, that was written against me, so to speak, hook, line and a real stinker, Never heard anything from anyone. <clears throat> so it's, um, I mean, 40 years uh, that I basically missed. You know, didn't see the development. Uh, it was already um, competition fishing. I found it was so terrible because there were always people who were cheating in some way or other. And 
I always said that any time I go fishing, it's a competition. Myself against the fish. And that was enough for me. I would also like to add here that we recorded a full interview regarding the poor beagle catch, which hopefully will go out later separately. So here we are now in April 2013. What are your thoughts on Scotland's long-term future in sea angling? If it's handled properly and if the stocks of certain fish return, I think there could be a great potential. The potential was there in the past, but there was uncontrolled commercial sea fishing, there was uncontrolled angling. You know, when you consider the Gantocks, the hotspot for big cod, how long did that last? Three, four years? And it wasn't only the commercial people. I mean, the Gantocks, I think, were destroyed not only, were ruined, not only through commercials who obviously heard from the angling scene what was being taken. I went out three times and I also had a cod, 36 pound, which I took for the museum. But the people who made the Gantocks famous, it was said when the weather was good, the neighbours were saying, oh God, they're not going to the Gantocks again. <laughs> you know, and the whole thing is always any fishing like that. Why can't people just be satisfied to catch a fish, admire it, and put it back. I mean, this this was a thing for me that if I wanted to see fish, I would have to catch them. And then I could look and see a nice creature like this, and then put them back. You pose the question, why can't people either take what they need and release the rest, or simply admire what they've caught, then put it back? And that, unfortunately, applies everywhere. But I have to say that from my visit to Scotland, certainly along its west coast, and also through my dealings with Sasakan and the many anglers that actively support the conservation work they do, the Scots are very much nearer achieving that goal, certainly, than the Brits. And some of the foundations for that work were put in place by you over 40 years ago. My thanks, then, to Dr Dietrich Burkle, both for inspiring those who would follow and for taking us back to those days leading up to and working as Scottish fish recorder.